This is Fantastical Truth. On this podcast from Lorehaven, we find truth in fantastic stories, and we apply this truth to the real world that our creator and savior, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. I am E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven, which just released its 10th issue for summer 2020. Go to lorehaven.com and check that out for free. And I'm Zachary Russell, but in the country of Tyr, I go by Zach. This is episode 23, What If You Could Turn Stories Into Sculptures? And we are going to be interviewing Lindsay A. Franklin, who authored the Weaver Trilogy about her latest book, The Story Hunter. So, Stephen, tell us more about this book. Oh, Lorehaven Magazine has actually reviewed all three of Lindsay's books. This is called the Weaver Trilogy, started a couple of years ago and just wrapped up this past spring uh, with the release of that third book, The Story Hunter. Our review team finds the best Christian-made fantastical novels. By Christian-made, we mean, hey, the author is a professing Christian. Might not have John 3.16 in the story, but the story itself, uh, by virtue of being excellently made, and including truths in imaginative scenarios, fantastical scenarios, qualifies as being made by a Christian. Our review team tries to review the best that we can find. We want mixed positive or better reviews, and uh, Lindsay's uh, stories definitely qualify as the more excellent that we have found. Lorehaven reviewed the story Peddler a few issues ago, and we're going to link all these reviews in the show notes to be sure. Our reviewer said, quote, this story spins a perfect array of delightful characters living with complex magical abilities in a truly unique world, end quote. A few issues later, we reviewed the story Raider, which is book two in Lindsay's Weaver trilogy. Our review said, quote, more adventure, higher stakes and betrayal at every turn make the story Raider a sequel that exceeds expectations, end quote. Every once in a while, I'll drop off the quote, end quote. I will get it right this time for the full review for The Story Hunter, which just released this year. Our review says, quote, no tapestry is complete while loose ends remain. The Story Hunter is the final book in Lindsay A. Franklin's Weaver trilogy series, sequel to The Story Peddler and The Story Raider. The country of Tyr is in turmoil. Queen Braith has been kidnapped and supplanted by a figurehead enthralled to an evil force. Famine and riots leave the people in unrest. Tanwin and the Corseth Weavers set out on a quest to rescue the Queen in order to restore peace to Tyr, guided by the one person they know they cannot trust. Worse, not everyone is as they seem, and some people in their own party may betray them at any turn. Danger, intrigue, and unforeseen twists make the story Hunter an entirely satisfying conclusion to the Weaver trilogy series. End quote. Check out the show notes for this episode for all of those reviews, plus, of course, uh, the link to the uh, issue that we just released for summer 2020. We are very glad to uh, get to know Lindsay through these stories and to speak with her in this interview. Uh, Lindsay A. Franklin, she says uh, in her bio, Lindsay A. Franklin would wear pajama pants all the time if it were socially acceptable. She writes books, edits words, and homeschools her three geeklings. Lindsay lives in her native San Diego with her scruffy-looking nerf herder husband, their precious offspring, three demanding thunder pillows, a.k.a. cats, and a stuffed marsupial named Wombat Man. That's a fantastic alternate comic superhero name, by the way. <laughs> so let's launch on into our interview with Lindsay A. Franklin. Lindsay Franklin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to be here. So tell us, how did you first discover faith and how did you discover fantastical stories? 
For me, the fantastical stories actually came well before faith um, in my case. So uh, I was not raised in the church, and um, which is kind of odd because both of my parents kind of come from um, families of faith, and and they met at Texas Christian University. <laughs> so <laughs> it's um, it's kind of strange that I wasn't raised in the church, but just in my parents' individual faith walks at that time, they were not attending church, and so that was not part of my upbringing. And but I've always been a reader. So I used to go to the library and just check out as many books as they would possibly let me and take nice. home my big giant stack and just, you know, work my way through that in a few days and then go back and do it again. Um, so uh, fantastical stories, the, the very first fantasy that I really remember diving into very deeply was the Wizard of Oz series. And I think I had my parents drive me all over to public libraries in San Diego to try to find as many of the, cause there's like 13 or 14 of those books. I don't know if you guys know that, but there's a ton of them. Oh yeah. My, my sister is a gigantic fan of Wizard of Oz. So she has yes. millions of versions of it in her room. Yes. Yeah. There's yeah, so, not just, not just the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> There are a ton of books that Baum himself wrote, and then there are books that came after that other authors wrote. And so I just wanted to devour that entire world. And it's very odd. I don't know how I would like it now, but as a child, I just loved those books intensely. So um, that was probably one of the first for me. Um, I can also remember sitting at the feet, almost literally, of my second grade teacher as she would read a chapter from Indian in the Cupboard to us oh, yeah. every afternoon. And that, I loved that story. I became a fan of Lynn Reed Banks, the author, after that. And she wrote a book called The Farthest Away Mountain, which is lesser known of her works. You know, Indian in the Cupboard is a lot more famous, but that was my favorite book for years um, throughout my childhood. So, um, and that's, it's very fantasy. It's very young girl goes on a journey and climbs up the farthest away mountain with colorful snow and everything. It's a very Lindsay kind of story. So that really <laughs> spoke to me um, when I was a kid. So faith didn't, didn't enter the picture for me until, until I was in high school and really a young adult, like 18. Um, was when I got saved. So those two things didn't quite mesh together for me for quite a long time. Actually, they, was, they were very separate, compartmentalized uh, pieces of my life. Well, how would you say that those things then did become meshed together? It sounds like you meant uh, that they did eventually intertwine in your mind uh, later on, you know, the idea of the biblical gospel and the idea that uh, God is glorified or can be glorified through uh, stories like these. Absolutely. So I, when I had, let's see, my two sons were little at the time. So about 18 months old and five years old, somewhere around there. And I went on a short-term missions trip with my church. And that was huge stepping out of the, the box with me because the missions trip was in Kosovo. So this wasn't like, I live in San Diego and this wasn't like a, a trip across the border into Mexico. This was a, a big trip. So that was weird to leave my my young children um, and do that. But I really felt God pulling me that direction. And when I came home, I just had this whole like fantasy interpretation of the spiritual experiences that I had on that missions trip. And I just started writing a YA fantasy based on what I had just experienced. And 
I would have been, I guess, in my early to mid 20s at this time. So that was probably the moment where my fantasy loving reader brain plus my writing tendencies, I've always been a writer. And so um, that kind of all wrapped up in my faith because that was such a spiritual experience that I had on that trip. And writing a story based off that, it was just natural to uh, incorporate that into the story world. So that was the moment when it all sort of meshed together. And I had no clue that Christian publishing was a thing. I had not even read Narnia at that point in my life. Oh, so very nice. Yes. <laughs> so I hey, had someone no in this room has not even yet read the Lord of the Rings. Ooh. And it ain't, I don't, it ain't I don't me. Know who you're talking about. <laughs> no, I just, I always, you know, I used to do that whole pull the, Oh, I can't believe you've never, you know, but I cannot stand when people do that to me because time is limited. And so is interest. Yes. Uh, in this case, you know, when, uh, and if, uh, and more likely when Zach gets a hold of a Tolkien's masterwork, uh, then he's going to be supremely blessed. We'll just put it that way. But anyway, so um, before, though, you uh, got the uh, the Weaver trilogy, your fiction, uh, your fantasy trilogy uh, published through Enclave, uh, you had uh, actually written some nonfiction. And as uh, someone who tries to live life myself at the uh, ley line intersections of nonfiction and fantasy, uh, this is a particular interest to me, uh, is a devotional book, Adored, 365 Devotions for Young Women. And I'm curious what your heart was behind this theme and in writing a devotional uh, and specifically for young women? Yeah. So young women are, well, I shouldn't say just young women, young people in general have always been my main audience. I'm a YA fiction writer. I've written, you know, YA contemporary fiction as well as YA fantasy, of course. Um, so the audience is pretty firmly cemented for me. And the way that Adored, and there's actually a follow-up um, book called Beloved, another devotional book. But the way that those two came about was an acquisitions editor at Zondervan. Um, I had submitted Story Peddler to her and she really liked it. But the uh, publishing committee said, you know, no fantasy, how they do, you know, um, they, they were yes. like, yeah, no more fantasy right now, whatever. So yeah, they, they can't help it. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> what they got to say. The canon is closed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, basically. <laughs> so um, it got rejected at committee, but she really liked my voice. So she said, you know, I've got these other nonfiction projects because she was an editor at both Blink, the YA fiction line at Zondervan and also at Zonder Kids, where they do all of their nonfiction stuff. She said, I've got these other projects, these nonfiction things. Um, she said, I don't even know if you write nonfiction. Would you be interested in this at all? And she didn't even know I had a biblical studies background. Like she, huh. she had no idea how perfectly geared these projects were toward me. She just had a feeling that um, I might be interested in this. And she was right. So um, I got to use some of my Bible college training and still speak to the audience that's always on my heart, but in a much more direct way about my faith, because my fiction tends to be a little bit more on the covert side. The themes are maybe like if you're biblically literate, I think you will see a lot of Christian themes in my fiction, but it's not allegorical. Let's put it that way. So this was a way to really speak very directly about my faith and about the Lord to my audience. So it was a super cool project. I, I loved the experience of writing those two books. That's awesome. Well, you know, here on our podcast, we love to talk about how nonfiction truth and fantastic imagination are all woven together. So how did that just motivate you? Like, so as you're going through biblical studies, as you 
write these devotionals, then, then why did you want to take the jump to write fantasy? Like, how did that, where did that motivation come from? Like, how did you see truth and imagination kind of making a connection? So when I first entered into the Christian publishing world, I had that little manuscript that I had written following, and this was not the story peddler, just uh, to be clear, this was a different fantasy manuscript that I, when I became aware that Christian publishing was a thing and Christian writers conferences were a thing, I thought, okay, I'm going to go take my little manuscript and see what happens. And the very first tagline that I ever came up with for my Christian fantasy author self was, I think, truth and fantasy, something like that. It's fairly generic, but the idea of biblical truth and fantastical stories has sort of been, you know, at the core of my career in this industry and my heart um, as an author since the beginning for me. So the nonfiction was a weird kind of detour that happened by accident in the Uh middle of that. So I started with this idea of truth and fantasy and then had this just straight truth kind of detour and then circled back to the the fantasy stuff. So and, and that's a very central theme in the Weaver Trilogy series where kind of my big quote that I always pull out from the story peddler is art has a way of revealing truth. Because I think that's true. And I don't even think it needs to be Christian art, you know, with big air quotes around it um, to reveal truth. I am a big fan of studying art from all eras, all centuries. And, you know, you can stand before some of these great works and whether or not the artist was a Christian, I see truth revealed or I see God revealed there um, just in the beauty of what these very talented artists were able to create. I see my creator reflected there. So that is a very central theme in the story peddler, especially. I'm just over here. Amening multiple times. (laughs) Of course, (laughs) this is, this is the creed of the fantastical truth podcast. And of course the lore Haven project. And I mean, all Zach's writing my writing as well. And I mean, there's so many authors whom God has, it seems, covertly and overtly been influencing in exactly this direction of the truth and imagination approach. There's, there's advantages to going overt mm-hmm. with a, a devotional or nonfiction, and there are many advantages to going covert uh, with, yep. uh, with imagination. And in this case, uh, you know, anyone who creates a story like this is almost certainly inspired by initial uh, images, ideas, people, places, and themes that jump as if unbidden into the creator's heart. I'm curious what images in your case uh, drove uh, your creation of Tanwin and Tyr, uh, the land of Tyr and the, the turmoil in the land uh, throughout uh, all the all three books of the Weaver trilogy. Absolutely. So I had completed and pitched two other books before I started writing The Story Peddler. And so my agent and I had been working on those. And now it was time for something new. And I was sitting at a writer's conference in a workshop and an acquisitions editor was talking about the publishing process and basically explaining to people a little newer in the industry how it works on her end. You know, after she hears pitches at a conference like that one, she will go back to her desk and read through all of the requested materials. And then if she finds something that really lights her up inside, then she has to go pitch that to the publishing board. So she's explaining this whole process for people who aren't familiar. And she was telling us she could really relate to 
the terror and the pressure of having to pitch your creative work because she, as an editor, will get very excited about some of these creative projects. And then she has to go and give a 30-second pitch or a 60-second pitch to all of the executives at her publishing house and the sales team. And you know, those committee meetings are no joke. So she was saying she could really relate to us. And she said, at the end of the day, I'm just a story peddler. I have to peddle your stories mm. the same way you have mm. to peddle them to me. And mm. yes. And then wow. she just moved on as though she didn't just say the coolest thing I'd ever heard in my life. And I was <laughs> like, what, what did you just say? So does she, does she, does she now get like three cents uh, every time you sell a copy or how does that work? It's like, nope, sorry. That was a spoken into the free air. It's a totally royalty free there. I mean, I should at least email her and tell her that this happened because I don't even know if she's aware. Like she's not a, an editor who, you know, I know, I know of you her. You never but... know the impact your words will have, people. Oh, man. So. But, but that's like those moments in, uh, there was one Star Trek movie where they're like, uh, who would have known in this trek among the stars that blah blah blah? And, I'm, and I, I remember as a kid hearing that and going, "Oh my gosh!" They hey, almost they said, said Star the Trek. Thing. They yeah. the name of the show. Right. How do they know? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. So I mean, that phrase just really captured me. And so I took my laptop and I went. This particular conference was the Mount Hermon Christian Writers Conference. So if you've never been there, it's in the middle of the redwoods in santa cruz area oh wow it's just gorgeous and so i went and took my laptop and sat down somewhere in the redwoods and <laughs> just started <laughs> writing because of course my fantasy brain took that that phrase in a really particular direction about what somebody who peddles stories is and what what they do and what that looks like um and so i went very visual with it with strands coming out of the hands of a story peddler and these strands then weaving together and crystallizing into a solid object that this peddler is then going to sell mm, so i love it that's i just started writing and what i wrote is basically identical to the first chapter of the published version of the story peddler so everything else in that book, for the most part, changed from, you know, throughout the revision <laughs> process. But that first chapter is very much what I wrote, um, just <laughs> sitting there in the middle of the redwoods, 20 minutes after hearing that phrase, the story peddler. So. Wow, uh, that's amazing. So what what were the themes in this trilogy that, that really that you wove into it? Don't give spoilers, obviously, but kind of <laughs> what, what what were some of the big ideas that you wanted to put in this story? This story is very much about art and about creativity and about how when we are creating, we reflect our creator. That's, that's a very intentional theme in this series, but I didn't, didn't quite grab hold of that in my first draft. In my first draft, I had in my, my brain very much branded myself as a Christian fantasy author. And so I thought I need to write overt, I need to write allegorical. And so I had this whole spiritual, when I say spiritual, I, I'm talking very specifically about, you know, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. kind of an allegory within the story peddler world. And my agent, who has been, I used to call her my long suffering agent, but um, <laughs> I now I now call her my faithful agent, but she just believed in me from day one, even when I was so green and needed so much craft work, because I had no idea what I was doing writing commercial fiction, um, she still 
believed in me and supported me and was always a fan of my writing. And when she read the very, very first draft of The Story Peddler, she came back to me and gave me the most critical feedback she's ever given me on something where, um, and she's not herself an, an author or an editor, but she gives really insightful feedback, like really high level reader type feedback, if that makes sense. And she said, I closed the book, closed the file at this particular point, point in the story. And I knew being somebody who outlines, that was the midpoint. That was the context shifting midpoint of my story. Like not uh -huh. a moment where you want your reader or your agent who loves your writing to say, I, I closed the file and like she didn't feel the need to continue at that point. Oh, I wow. mean, it was very very, um, and she's a super kind person. So she didn't say this in a mean way, but it's very mm -hmm. harsh, harsh feedback to receive um, from someone who normally loves everything that you write. I was like, oh my <laughs> gosh, what have I done to this great concept that I, I got this cool phrase and this neat story world? And, and what did I do uh, with this story? So I realized I was trying to shoehorn this Christ allegory into a story that wasn't really about that, um, because not every story has to be, you know, about that. And um, so when I sat down to replot the entire thing, because that's what I did, I scrapped almost all of my supporting cast. I reimagined Tanwin has been there since the beginning, and she's the same as she's always been. But I completely repopulated the story with different supporting characters, a completely different storyline, because what this wanted to be about was about creativity. And I still think it's a very Christian theme without being about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, J.R.R. Tolkien said we are sub-creators with God. Mm -hmm. So he has a whole essay about this on uh, called On Fairy Stories. It's, it's all about the, the Christian artist, the Christian storyteller as a reflection of, like, of a creator, like you said. Love and, uh, you know, and Stephen and I have talked about this before that the Christian stories, uh, like like the 101 level, are the, the gospel analogies, right? Mm -hmm. But like the 201 level are the stories about the Christian life. Mm -hmm. You know, like what, what does it mean to be? Okay, so now you're a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Like what what are the, what does that look like? And so I like that you kind of went that route that you, you taught, you wove a story uh, that's more about what it looks like to kind of live in the image of God, um, not just become that follower of God, but how to walk as someone like that. So that that's very, very cool. Well, and I'd say too, the, the 202 level or 301, whatever, if you're talking about the community college uh, classrooms, uh, <laughs> uh, branching off of the hallway are the Christian approach, the Christian stories about the human experience. And uh, some of those, you know, whether or not uh, you, they're written by a Christian, you know, can be very biblical or at least reflect the common grace of God in in very amazing and creative ways. Lindsay, you've actually uh, incidentally uh, set up what we're planning at least right now uh, to be our next episode, which is the, the top seven myths about the Chronicles of Narnia. Ooh. And one of those I'll just go ahead and say is the idea that these stories are valuable mainly because they are allegorical, uh, which you know is not uh, Lewis's intent in writing and we would need to respect his intent. However, I mean, that is at least a better idea than fantasy is evil or fantasy is neutral suspect somehow, yes. uh, which uh, many, many Christians, you know, whether or not they grew up in Christian uh, households, we got exposed to that idea fairly early. Oh, Narnia is okay because it's allegory. Mm -hmm. And hey, I'll, t I'll take it, you know, because I'm a pragmatist. Uh, you've got to start somewhere appreciating fantasy, uh, which is, you know, growing up homeschooled. 
Uh, that's something that I, I grew up believing, I think, and then got a hold of some better material about the, uh, the purpose of Narnia and other Christian-made fantasy. But I wanted to ask, uh, you yourself are, uh, are a homeschool uh, mom. First, for, is it first generation for you? For first generation homeschooler? Yes, absolutely. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, just like my parents. Although I must say they are making homeschoolers much cooler these days. I've been to a few homeschool conventions, <laughs> obviously last year and none this year. They are all <laughs> getting canceled. Uh, but I'm curious, you as a creator of fantasy and one who discovered fantasy and then faith separately and then found them being combined as a fan and then as a creator. Uh, curious whether you have any thoughts on the unique appeal that fantasy has in particular to Christians who are homeschoolers. It's a really interesting phenomenon, I guess, is, is the word for it, um, because you see this and, and I don't, I don't really know how to analyze it, to be honest with you, like to really um, figure out why there seems to be such a, I, I don't know if it's something that applies to the generation as a whole, you know, outside of the homeschool community too, that kids and teens and young adults are just super hungry for these types of stories, because that does kind of seem to be the case. And um, I think that's true of, I was about to say our generation, but I actually don't know how old you guys are. I might be older than both of you, perhaps. <laughs> but, I'm 40. Um, okay, I'm, I'm 38. So we're kind of like in, in the zone here. Okay. 37 if we're all okay. declaring. All right. <laughs> so we are all part of the same generation. Cool. Um, Exennial, I believe. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I think it's kind of true for our generation as well, that we um, connect with these kind of stories. So I don't know what, why that is exactly. Stephen, you probably have a better answer for this, because I feel like this is kind of in your in your zone in the area that you um, play around in a lot with pop culture and, and why, um, you know, why certain stories connect the way they do. But I found in our local homeschool co-op that we used to be part of. Now we're kind of under an umbrella um, charter program. And so it's a little bit different, but we homeschooled independently for 11 years. And so we were um, part of a co-op so that my kids, you know, had some kind of social group. And um, there were some subjects, you know, that I could have other moms teach. And I taught uh, creative writing to their kids. And um, so that was a really cool era in our lives. But um, I noticed that, you know, a lot of the parents who were typically a bit older than I was. I was like a young mom in that group, but they might be really uncomfortable with the idea of fantasy. And then the teens that I was teaching, and my children were little at the time. So the teens that I was teaching, they were hungry for these kinds of stories. And so I would get all these creative writers in my class and they're like, my mom won't let me read, you know, fill in the blank, whether it's Harry Potter or, or whatever in those days, probably Twilight. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of that era. <laughs> so I would always tell my kids, you know, you need to respect the boundaries that your parents put out for you, but also it, it's okay to find your, your own way guided by the Holy Spirit when you're older, when you're an adult, you kind of figure out um, what sort of content you're comfortable with. And it's okay to sort of, um, disagree with your parents about some of these things. But when you're older, when you're a kid, you respect their boundaries because those are the rules and that's how this works. But I don't know why it is that this group seems particularly passionate about fantastical stories. I, I don't know what it is. You'll have hmm. to tell me. <laughs> I think, I think, you know, I didn't write this question for me to answer, but I think it's because <laughs> 
at least well first of all it's survival uh, fantasy mm-hmm. is the top genre ever i believe still at last count all 20 top earning films in the world in all of movie history are fantasy genre in some way even titanic because it's got you know the afterlife sequence and all that i mean it's basically mm-hmm. a historical fantasy there at least by the end at least as i've been told about the end uh <laughs> i haven't actually seen it uh so all Stay you strong. Titanic fans Stay strong. out there yes <laughs> But it, I think uh, on top of the the just to survive in the world aspect is I think that at least godly young Christians surely can detect that there is light here, even if they don't yet know how to describe it. And I love what you said about how it is a process, must be a process guided by the Holy Spirit. I was actually in another conversation with my wife earlier. We were talking about parenting and fantasy and all that, you know, very increasingly relevant stuff to us clearly and <laughs> something that we've talked about and studied for quite a while now ready to put into practice. But we were mentioning, or I was saying that if I had to choose between the strict, well-meaning parent who says, you know, no Harry Potter, no fantasy, you know, I don't know about it, we must be holy, and the person who's just, eh, whatever, it's just a story, it's not actually valuable, I would actually go with the first option if I had to choose because at least that person is trying to pursue holiness according to how they understand it. I'd question their application, but <laughs> right. I appreciate that intent. And mm-hmm. I think from there, all it takes is, is, a, a, is a wise Christian who studied truth and imagination from the scripture to come along and say, this is actually a unique way to worship God in holiness and in grace according to the scripture. You don't compartmentalize it and go off and do your geeky stuff over here and then go to church on Sunday mornings. It's all one Jesus-centered, gospel-focused life. I love that. Yeah, so we, we're a homeschool family. And, um, well, our, we have four kids, and our, our kids are actually kind of all at different stages of this. And, and we, we've had a mixture of, of different schooling methods. But our older kids are huge readers. And, in fact, my 10-year-old, I've, I've been buying her these, um, <clears throat> the Adventures in Odyssey Imagination Station books. And then now, now we're on to the uh, Young Wit. Uh, All available series. from the Real Makers Bookstore, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Free plug, and, uh, Real Makers Bookstore. <laughs> so, so the other day, one of them comes in the mail. And by the time she went to bed, she's like, okay, I'm finished. <laughs> you know, and this is like our, it's like our little running joke is, you know, read slower. I can't buy books that fast. <laughs> Oh, nuts. We authors will simply have to make more of them. <laughs> I know. Darn, darn. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's so great how they are so captured by the love of reading. And um, my oldest daughter has read the Andrew Peterson Wingfeather saga. And that, oh, that is like I her favorite it. thing. I love getting to introduce them to this great fiction. I, I think what the challenge is for a lot of parents is just how Stephen said there's that on one extreme, there's the don't engage with the world, separate ye. And then on the other be extreme, ye a peculiar people. Yeah, and peculiar means as peculiar as possible <laughs> <laughs> with your your homemade clothes and you know all that kind of thing. And uh, then the other end, there's the extreme of oh well, whatever you know, uh, whatever is fine. You know, it can't harm you. It's just a book. It's just words or whatever. And it's like, well, that kind of denies the power of stories and the power of words, and you know they can affect us. And so there's. Those are both like the gutters, you know, the, the, the two sides of like the road, like the, the mm-hmm. ditches on the road and being somewhere in between that, it takes a lot of effort. It, it takes a lot of time mm-hmm. to engage with your kids, to either read the books they're reading or to talk to them about the books. And, you know, and th- this is a challenge even with, with our kids. Cause our, our oldest kid, 
She tells us everything that's on her mind. <laughs> you know, she, um, she just has not like no internal, mo- like I have no internal monologue and, and she's kind of similar, but it's just, she's just totally open. But our, our second daughter, she's very introverted. She's kind of our one true introvert in our family. And she just takes everything in and she thinks it through and she might mention something, you know, months later about something that bothered her in a story or, or whatever. It's hard to do this as a parent. It's hard to be engaged. And hey, what do you know? Lorehaven has lots of great reviews, parents. So if you're a parent, <laughs> you can read all these reviews. You can you can get a little parent's guide, a little mini guide to go from. So let, let's talk about your readers though, Lindsay, like you know, what are some messages or uh, encouraging things or just feedback? Like what have your readers told you about your Weaver trilogy? The response to the Weaver trilogy has been, I feel like I use the word overwhelming a lot, but I can't think of a better one for what it's been like because I worked for let's see, six years before I got this contract. So my agent and I were actively trying to sell a novel for six years before this happened. And so I think that just having a book that I wrote in my hands was that that was the sum total of my dream by that point, because we had been working so hard and getting so much, um, so many very wonderful rejections, you know, very positive rejections, but always <laughs> no, you know, so at, at this point, my dream had been pared down. I mean, I never thought about, oh, it would be cool if, um, you know, these were made into a movie someday, or it would be cool if I won an industry award, or it would be cool if whatever, if I hit a bestseller list, I wasn't even thinking in those terms anymore. It was just if I could someday hold my own book in my hands, that was the dream. And so to have the kind of um, response that I have from the Weaver trilogy has been like shocking and overwhelming to me because what has happened is there's like a little tiny fandom out there (laughs) for these books of people who are super passionate about the characters. They're passionate about the world. They talk about what kind of weaver they want to be. They talk about all the little side characters and the little relationships that are going on for all these like, you know, characters who have five lines in the whole book. And um, they want to know what happens after the end of Story Hunter. And am I ever going to write any prequel novellas and stuff? So it just blows my mind that anybody cares that much about this this world that I made up you know what I mean it's like do you get fan art I do I do get fan art we've reached the fan art stage (laughs) of development this is wonderful now I get fan art and I have some younger readers who are, you know, maybe like in the 12, 13 range. I've gotten some really cute pictures and things um, drawn from that. I have the wonderful artist who I commissioned to make um, little critter drawings for this launch. I turned them into stickers, you know, from some of the critters that are in my story world. Her daughters are fans of the series, and I know her. She's a writer as well, this artist. Her name's Hannah Pruitt, and her art is so adorable, so wonderful, but her daughters are fans. And so she told me they died when they found out that I was going to, that you commissioned me to, you know, make um, these Uh critter drawings for your launch. And so just stuff like that, I never would have imagined or could have imagined that um, that would ever be happening, that I have fans out there. It's just weird. Um, I get notes from readers and I'm trying to think of some of the, um, I get, to be honest with you, I get a lot of notes um, about Adored 
about the devotional books. So when readers are contacting me to say, this changed my life in some way, it's often about the devotional books. And when people contact me about the Weaver trilogy, it's, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this story. And that's kind of my my goal, I guess, with those with those two different types of projects, because I'm hoping to um, unpack the scriptures and really dive into the kind of stuff that is life changing in my nonfiction. And that's not life changing because of something I wrote. That's life changing because we're diving into God's word. And and that does uh, change us. And when I'm writing fiction, I want the story to grab hold and for it not simply to be entertainment, because I am a fan of weaving in deep themes and, and making it more than just cotton candy entertainment. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just not where I've ever kind of been directed as an artist, um, if that makes sense. So that's a lot of the kind of feedback that I get on the fiction as I just loved this story or my kids love this story. And that will sustain me for like an entire uh, week of like where, where I won't get discouraged for that whole week about, about my life uh-huh. as an author, because it's very easy to get discouraged in this industry. You guys may or may not agree with that, but I think that's fairly universal <laughs> for authors. It's, it's easy to become discouraged. And so when I hear that somebody enjoyed something that I created, I'm like, yes. Okay, I can keep going. I can keep doing oh, yes. this. Well, yeah. you've also incidentally set up that uh, future podcast episode that I know we need to do, <laughs> Zach, which is a kind of a behind the scenes survey of Christian fantasy. And, you know, every once in a while, uh, like even listeners to the podcast, listener, you may be arriving with this brand new, amazing, original question in your mind. Hi. We need to get some more Christian fantasy around these parts. Uh, yes, so saith we all for at least one, possibly two generations. And in short, the answer is, is that there's not enough demand, even if the stories are amazing and professionally done and covert, not overt and not ending with the altar call and the whole football team gets saved. You know, like it's supposed to happen in a Christian movie. Uh, it has to be a development at the reader level. You have to get more fans and support for great stories like the Weaver trilogy, any of the books from Enclave, any of the other books from other publishers and independent publishers. Some of this is behind the scenes stuff, but in short, that's the reason why we are slowly building this call in a movement for incredible, excellently made Christian made fantasy uh, that also has some appeal uh, to others, but is, you know, unapologetically Christian, but you may not go in there, you know, and see uh, Jesus figure X, you know, dying in a certain, you know, allegorical way. Uh, a lot of those stories are being made by authors who are involved with Realm Makers. And I mentioned that uh, because the Realm Makers conference is recurring this July 2020 is when we are releasing this episode. Alas, of course, like every conference, it is a pandemic edition. <laughs> uh, we had to make that decision a few months ago. It was going to be in New Jersey. That is now an alternate branching reality Choice. yes <laughs> on the in, the in the branch reality of uh, the several interesting things happened and, and then real makers got to have in in uh, their conference in in new jersey but Lindsay, i just wanted to ask uh i mean s- several of your books uh the um uh, the story peddler and then story raider uh released in the i think at least i remember there's a lot of buzz during the realm makers conference and so this year is a little bit different and you're actually helping to put the conference together Words on Realm Makers and, and how that is going now that we are in cyberspace, in, in the matrix, instead <laughs> of in the real world for wacky year 2020. 
Oh man, I love Rural Makers so much. So yes, I'm the appointment coordinator this year, which has been really interesting because it was one of those jobs that, you know, you do a lot of prep work, getting the calendars all set up and getting, make sure everybody gets their appointment scheduled. And then the job is, you know, fairly hectic at the conference too, making sure that the room is set up and everybody knows where they're supposed to go, but kind of low key, you know, I know I had a book launch this spring and and I do try to be at least somewhat uh, cognizant of what is on my calendar. I tend to overcommit, but I was like, no, I can do this. This is cool. And then um, a global pandemic hit and we suddenly <laughs> go go virtual. And No I had... one expects the coronavirus. <laughs> right. Um, so I had kind of done half of the work to get, you know, the, the in-person calendars set up and, and assuming that we were still going to meet in person. Um, then I, it became, okay, we, the conference is going to meet in person, but I might not physically be there because I'm looking at, you know, my risk factors and such. I was like, okay, how are we going to do this? And then we went fully virtual. So my job has completely shifted um, for this conference. And so coordinating the virtual appointments has been a really fun adventure. But I love logistics and operations. It uses a really different part of my brain. And so this kind of planning committee type uh, work, I enjoy that. It it makes me happy um, because it's something that I don't, it's part of my brain I don't use very often when I'm, um, you know, being a novelist or doing the other things in my my authory career. So I like these kinds of um, positions. And Realm Makers is very near and dear to my heart. I've attended every year that it has been in existence. So back to 2013, I guess. And I was previously on the planning committee as the faculty coordinator for a couple of years. So I've, I've kind of, you know, been there and sort of in the background for a number of years. And so it was cool to rejoin the committee this year to, to do that little itty bitty job of appointment coordination, which snowballed into a giant thing, but, but it's good. <laughs> Yeah, it, a lot of spreadsheets, probably more than you're used to as a, as an author. <laughs> well, yes. I, I'm really I'm looking forward to being with you at the conference uh, virtually, anyway, and in whatever it is, Slack or Discord or however we're doing it. But uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you for all your all the work you're doing for Rawmakers. So what what's next for you, Lindsay? Like after this conference, you know, as a story peddler yourself, uh, you know, what what are you working on next, and where can people follow you? So the best place to follow me is probably Instagram. That's the most fun platform to follow me on because that's it's another creative outlet for me. My my account on Instagram is is pretty much a bookstagram account. So I love to take photos and they tend to have books and sparkly things and and whatever. So that's kind of just <laughs> a fun a fun creative outlet. Um so you can follow me there. You can find me on Facebook, of course. I'm kind of all over the internet, so it's not hard to find me. Um just search Lindsay A Franklin and I will pop up in a number of places. But I am working on a new series and I had planned to devote my whole summer to pre-writing. I spend a lot of time pre-writing. So I know like my very best friend she writes brilliant YA contemporary novels. And she is the epitome of a discovery writer. So she drafts and drafts and drafts um, until she arrives at a, a very sound story structure and her characters are well-developed. And it's just so interesting for me to watch her process because that is not at all the way my writer brain works. If I do that, I will wander all over the place. I will never get to the point where I have anything resembling a clean draft. And so I, I just don't understand how her brain gets there, but it's very intriguing. So for me, I will spend months or even a year 
pre-writing where I'm building characters and I'm building the story world and I'm thinking about the plot and I'm just writing notes and I do most of that by hand. So that was going to be what my summer was for my new project. And um, it's been a little bit swallowed by Realm Makers, but you know, that'll be occurring in a couple of weeks. So I'll have the second half of my summer to um, work on my new project. And then after I do all that pre-writing, I will uh, make an outline because my brain is way too scattered to not have an outline. Like I said, I will never arrive at uh, my, my destination if I don't have a map. So um, <laughs> that, that's what's up next for me is working on that new, that new project. And I'm really excited because it's been years since I've done that. So I can't wait. Ah, the thrill of the chase, uh, yes. the, the 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 hunting, the raiding, the peddling of the story. Uh, although I suppose, I suppose in your real life creative process would be the hunting, the raiding, and then the peddling, uh, as opposed to the 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 story uh, story it's peddler, true. the story raider, the yeah. story hunter. So the, it's not an analogy, it's not an exact analogy. So that's why they're out of order there. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. We are going, of course, to link to your website and your social media platforms in the show notes for this episode. We will also link to Realm Makers and, of course, all three reviews of the Weaver trilogy that have appeared in various issues of Lorehaven magazine. Uh, that new issue is out with the review of the final novel, The Story Hunter. And we will be sure to link to that. It's the summer 2020 issue. Totally free to download. You can also subscribe at lorehaven.com slash subscribe. We'll link to everything. And Lindsay, I think I already said this, but you are doing the Lord's work. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, just God's blessings in Christ to you, your husband, and your whole amazing family. Thank you all so much for having me. This was a blast. You bet. And hey, just a closing thought, Lindsay. When you talked about Wizard of Oz at the beginning, my something started rattling around in my brain. I had seen this Bible verse before that perfectly captures the story of the Wizard of Oz. And I'm like, where is that? So I had to hunt around for it. And it's 2 Timothy 1.7. And I don't know if you've ever seen this connection, but it's really fun. It says, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So there you go. Fear, love, and, you know, brains, the, the all, all three it was main an characters. allegory yes all along it was an allegory <laughs> it's christian it. oh, it's perfect oh i love that so much that's an awesome yeah. connection <laughs> well done all right well thanks so much for joining us thank you okay now let's hear from our fantastic fans Oh, yes, Zach. It turns out that after that one about the aliens, our last podcast episode, we intercepted many transmissions from listeners, presumably those uh, from planet Earth. That's right. We got one in our mailbag from The Zignal, who says, quote, nothing but applause. This was a fantastic discussion from an interesting perspective. Thank you for sharing, end quote. Well, thank you, The Zignal. And uh, this person and I started following each other on Twitter. And so it's really fun to see what this person posts. So I encourage you to check this person out. Yeah, we had a lot of social media feedback unique to this episode, uh, episode 22, including this reply. Uh, looks like someone found me personally. David Mock at David Mock one says, quote, at East Stephen Burnett, thank you for the latest podcast. It helped me think biblically, realistically and compassionately about UFO sightings. If aliens do exist, we may find ourselves in an Acts 11.18 place if they repent and believe, including the imputation of Adam's sin to them. Slightly unrelated, it's encouraging to trace the Bible's idea of aliens. Alien to God's covenant from Genesis to Revelation, including resident aliens in Israel, and when 
To the Gentiles also God has granted repentance and the cosmic scale shift described in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Straight after listening to the podcast, I knew I needed some healthy Christian music and was encouraged by A Mighty Fortress is Our God and It Is Well With My Soul, The Eternal Truths in Every Unsure Situation. Smiley, icon, emoji, whatever, end quote. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate that feedback. I still think that aliens, if they existed, uh, may be influenced by the whole groaning universe, but uh, Jesus's incarnation is unique to humanity, and I, I still can't find a way around that, but I would like to. Uh, because I would love some other civilizations out there who have moral responsibility and uh, sentience at that level. And uh, if they do exist, then I would like them to have a path for redemption, just like human beings do. Yeah. And, you know, since that episode, I've had a number of conversations on Twitter with folks that have found this episode. And it's been a really fun thing to talk about with a lot of people. Um, we, we've talked about Out of the Silent Planet and some other Christian fiction as well, which you can uh, you can check out. So uh, thanks to everyone that's chimed in and given us your thoughts about that episode. Well, one way or another, it throws into, I think, relief, the uniqueness of Christ's redemption plan for people, and particularly the terms of the incarnation. There's a theological term called the hypostatic union. I don't think we got into that in that lengthy uh, UFO uh, alien related episode, but Christ is a human being to this day, and I, I don't see any scenario in which he somehow translates or shapeshifts out of that form in order to incarnate as a Vulcan and repeat the whole thing. Uh, it seems to me that uh, one horrifying sacrificial death uh, would be enough uh, for our amazing Savior. That's my view, but what's your view? Email us at podcast at lorehaven.com or uh, tweet us at lorehaven on the social media. Uh, that's Twitter specifically. You can also follow us on Facebook, Lorehaven Mag, and uh, then we're also on Instagram. Next on Fantastical Truth, Lord willing, we will explore the top seven myths of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, that's in case uh, we're not uh, assuming we're not invaded by aliens or anything like that uh, that would uh, necessitate a last minute topic change. Uh, these myths from the Chronicles of Narnia are not uh, like the account of how the Lone Islands came to be part of the Narnian territory or the tale of Moonwood the Hare with his amazing super ears. Instead, these are myths that readers or Christians or anyone uh, has uh, come up with about the series by C.S. Lewis. Uh, in this uh, outline for the podcast, Zach, I've actually striven to sort the myths out uh, by order of appearance. Uh, we'll be interested to see if you agree in the order uh, with the order that I've chosen. Uh, have you ever believed any of these? Like, it's just a sample of the myths. C.S. Lewis was a universalist. He believed that everybody goes to heaven no matter what. Or this big one, Narnia is an allegory for the Christian life. But I think there's actually a myth that I found, Zach, that's even more widespread than any of those. So I'm really looking forward to that discussion. Meanwhile, weave your stories for God's glory. Peddle them, hunt them, raid them, whatever verb you choose, even as the kingdoms around us just can't quit fighting over things as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth.